Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from the leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. So thanks for joining us today. My name's Nick. I'm the Clinical Education Manager here at Metagenics and I'm joined by Nathan Rose, who's our Head of Science. And we're going to do a bit of an update on uh, all things COVID and the developments on the research and the state of the pandemic slash endemic. Um, so to start, uh, we're sort of, we've seen this Omicron variant and in the news over the last week or so, COVID's almost taken a backseat. Um, yeah. With, you know, the wars and everything. Yeah. We've seen Floods and restrictions overseas easing up. So. Um, what is the current state of play? Do you want to bust yeah, your crystal yep. ball and yeah. tell us what's going <laughs> to yeah, happen? Yeah, yes, everyone listen to me. I've got all the answers. Um, and first of all, thanks for, for joining me, Nick. Good to see you. Um, so, yeah, what's the future look like? Um, I don't know, but I, I, I thought I'd just discuss, like, the difference between a pandemic and an endemic and maybe some misconceptions around what endemic means because endemic is where you're sort of living with the, the illness. It's less prevalent in society. It's still scattered around the world. Um, but doesn't necessarily mean that it's any more benign or safer than the you know, original um, strain or virus. So I think HIV is a good example that um, it hasn't become any more benign. Thankfully, through technology and so forth, better understanding that you know, people can live with HIV now, et cetera. Um, so I think there's a view that Omicron, uh, sorry, COVID, it's going to become more and more benign. I, I, I think it will. I hope it will. I think that's what happened like with the Spanish flu, obviously, 100 years ago. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to become, you know, less virulent. Uh, obviously, it's in the virus' best interest to become sort of as most benign and as transmissible as possible because it wants to survive. So there's no point it becoming super deadly and, and killing the host like Ebola. So I suspect it will become more benign, but we can't guarantee that. Um, I don't know, my gut feel is there's going to be a few more twists and turns, there'll probably be a new variant or two. But, you know, if we look at back to the Spanish flu, it seemed to um, go over a couple, you know, three or four year period, these, mm. these um, peaks and troughs. I think the worst is behind us, thankfully. Um, I think probably all the restrictions and so forth are, are behind us, but um, there might be strains in the future. I don't know if they're going to be less virulent to start with, so watch this space. But looking at Oric, um, Omicron specifically, it does seem to be yeah. a little bit more Yeah, benign. correct. So I think my take is that it's much more benign, but it's not as benign as some make out. Like it's, it's much safer than um, Delta. It seems to spread a bit more, but in terms of hospitalizations, um, fatalities, obviously, it, it is less. Interestingly, it, it looks like it, it probably is not as, um, sparing on children as like you know how the delta was it mostly attacks the elderly yeah. uh, afflicts the elderly and causes the mortality looking at the hospitalizations of omicron it seems to be a bit more distributed through the age groups um thankfully it's you know much more benign the children are, are overcoming it but it seems to be you know less selective to the elderly um but i think they're still the most at risk but it seems to have spread a bit across to the left a bit more if you think of the age group. And I suppose that sort of fits with that evolutionary theory of the virus wanting to, you know, be able to infect as many people as possible and yeah, survive itself. Exactly, and spread around. Yeah. So the um, the current strategies that we've used for Delta and, and other variants, so our vaccines and, and even natural immunity, is it looking like they're as effective against Omicron and, you know, would 
could we speculate as to whether it would be effective for future variants? Yeah, it's a good or? question. So, yeah, we'll look at both vaccine and natural immunity. Mm. I know it's a contentious issue, both, but um, so the vaccines obviously were first developed for the alpha strain mm -hmm. around the spike protein. Obviously, there's been some drift with the, the genes of the spike protein and the rest of the virus um, in Omicron. Um, fortunately, the data seems to be showing that there's a lot of protective effects from the vaccine, even though they were um, designed for the original strain, there seems to be a carryover effect to the Omicron. So mm. if you look at um, all the data, it seems pretty consistent, like um, hospitalizations are reduced, you know, 10 plus fold, fatalities right. are, are reduced, you know, 10 plus fold from um, people who are getting, who have been vaccinated. Um, it seems incremental, the, the vaccination benefits. So um, I think the data shows that the first vaccine has the most protection. Um, the second one, there's a much greater benefit. Um, and the, the booster does to, seem to be showing even greater benefit, even though it's still marginal, mm. but the data, there, there is um, clear difference between the second and third um, shot of uh, reducing mortality and, and morbidity okay. from the, the vaccine compared to unvaccinated. So there's a bit of a conversation there, I guess, around sort of absolute versus relative. Yeah, yeah, so a couple of things there. So. Um, depends how you look at the, the data. Like, as I said, I've, I've looked at sort of the difference between the two groups. Um, but as many people argue that the absolute risk of um, COVID is still pretty small in healthy younger people if you're unvaccinated, mm -hmm. I should say. So um, being an unvaccinated sort of 20, 30 year old tends to um, be more protective than being a, a vaccinated, triple boosted 80-year-old. Um, right. Um, but, you know, we can't do much about age, so... <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, but, you know, a vaccinated 20-year-old versus an unvaccinated 20-year-old, there is a still a reduction. Um, but the absolute risk is, is pretty low. But, you know, it's like maybe driving, driving to work today, there's a low risk of having a crash and injuring yourself generally. Mm -hmm. But if you put your seatbelt on and drive to work, you know, it's reduced a little bit more as well, so. Yeah, and of course you want to do everything you can to keep yourself and your family. Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about maybe the side effects in a moment because, you know, people wear out the, the, the benefits and side effects. Just one other thing about the um, natural immunity. There's a lot of, you know, it's been politicised as well, unfortunately, like a lot of things with COVID, but um, there is good argument that catching COVID does obviously, you know, we've got an immune system that develops T and B cells. Um, Contracting COVID unvaccinated does build up some good immunity to um, other strains. Mm. The data seems to be mixed around which is better being vaccinated or getting COVID. Mm -hmm. um, strangely, the data to me, my interpretation still suggests that the, being vaccinated gives you a bit more broader protection against subsequent um, variants. So, really? yeah, yeah, I, I was surprised about this. Counterintuitive. Isn't I know. It? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, th I still think that, to me, my interpretation is an infection is worth one one vaccination. Like, yeah. so maybe people who have been, you know, um, had the infection, maybe they get one vaccination rather than two or three. Um, this is everybody's choice, but I sort of seem pretty comparable that um, some exposure um, creates some immunity and it seems to be lasting. And we have got that antibody testing available in Australia now through Nutripath. Um, do you have any comment on the efficacy of that? Or the... I haven't looked at it, to be no. honest, um, because the rat tests and things are, you know, relatively accessible. Mm. Um, it hasn't really piqued my interest. I don't know, have you looked into it? I had a look at it. I mean, it does seem to be relatively reliable and valid um, and it's inexpensive. It's about 65 bucks, okay. I think, to get. Um, I guess my question is, what's the utility of that at this point? Yeah. Um, 
it's not clear whether having those antibodies would get you an exemption from getting vaccinated, for example. Yeah, or, right. Or, yeah, yeah. You know, so it's it's probably good for curiosity at this stage, yeah. but I'm not yeah. really sure about the clinical utility. Yeah, and say. that's right. That argument around antibodies versus like T and B cell memory, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the, the research looks at efficacy of. Um, vaccines or infection in terms of you know your antibody levels but they do wane over time but you still have protection because your T and B cells have that memory so I think it can be a bit misleading just relying on antibodies. Yeah absolutely absolutely. Um, so another contentious one what about masking is there any evidence yeah, that that's yeah, helpful? Yeah so now we've cleared <laughs> vaccines let's yeah. um, masking that is an interesting one like mm. like the like the vaccine there's nuance to it mm. um, so there's been and it's difficult to, Similar to the vaccines, you can probably study those a little bit clearer with um, randomised controlled trials. There's been fewer um, controlled trials and there's some sort of more um, empirical data, which can make a little bit hard to understand. But again, there is a bit of a signal with some benefit of masks, but there's nuance. So um, one of the early trials was in Bangladesh. Um, this is the start of the, the coronavirus outbreak, where the rates weren't that high, but uh, they did think something called a cluster random, randomised control, where they gave like one one village um, masks and uh, another village no masks. Okay. Um, and then they, they looked at the rates of COVID in those groups. And the, the important thing is they give, gave three different types of masks. So you got the, okay. the cloth mask, you got the like the blue surgical mask, yeah. or the you know the real protective or the, the bigger heavy duty N95 mask. And what these two um, groups found was that the cloth mask didn't do much in terms of prevention, preventing infection. Um, the surgical mask had some benefit, but there was the N95 that showed the superior results. So my bandana's not really cutting it. Oh, it looks so, good. Yeah. It looks good. <laughs> um, and this has been replicated in other trials, which are probably less controlled. Mm -hmm. um, why, why I say this is because you can con confound things like people who, you know, take all the precautions are generally more precautious. They might social distance yeah. more, might wash their hands more, might not go out and, you know, socialise more versus someone who's maybe a bit more you know, cavalier, mm. um, so, you know, it's hard to read, but there was a signal in those, those studies as well that N95 seems superior to the surgical versus the cloth, maybe doesn't have a, a whole heap of benefit. Okay, yeah, so if you have got the choice, probably N95's If you're concerned about contracting it, yeah, yeah, um, I'd, yeah, mask up with an N95. Okay, absolutely. So, um, perhaps I can ask you some questions. Sure. So we've covered off some of the more, you know, mainstream, mm -hmm. um, ideas around vaccinations and masks but now let's turn our attention to like our area of expertise natural medicine mm. uh, does it offer you know benefit say for either prevention um, treatment during an infection or this um, emerging and worrying idea of uh, long COVID so um, big question but um, what really piques yeah. your interest around natural medicines and COVID? Yeah so I mean there's a few things that are coming out of the research around this and a lot of them I don't think will be surprising to, yeah. you know, our community. Um, it's the usual suspects, but I think now it's safe to say that the evidence um, for vitamin D in relation to COVID is pretty incontrovertible. All right. Um, we've got a really huge meta-analysis covering a million people. Wow. Um, and 70, nearly 78% of the papers in that showed a clear correlation between vitamin D levels, um, rates of infection, complication and hospitalisation. So this is vitamin D status in our, this our blood? Is, yeah, yeah, vitamin yeah, D. Yeah, right. And any, blood levels. any sort of, well, I know it's a meta-analysis, so it's mixed sort of the, the range, but is there any sort of marker or cutoff that just determines, you know, insufficiency versus replete and what we should be aiming for? Yeah, so that was kind of um, your standard medical range. So I think the cutoff they used in this one 
um, was 61.5 nanomoles. Oh, okay, so yeah, um, pretty conservative sort of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah. Um, but it does seem like there's a really clear signal there. Uh, we don't have a lot of intervention trials around vitamin D yet, but yep. there is one that's, that's showing um, 5,000 IU per day. Um, really helped to reduce the severity and duration and the amount of hospitalizations. Right. So that was that was just a short-term intervention, but yep. you know, I think I'm quite confident to say that uh, 5,000 IU per day, particularly in people who are deficient to begin with, yeah, yep. is going to be really yep. beneficial. So can I just ask on that, one of the areas I've always been interested in vitamin D, it feels like it's good to have vitamin D levels prior to getting ill, but sometimes once you're ill, adding back vitamin D doesn't have a, a huge impact. So you're saying this is in people who were infected rather than prophylactically? Yes. Correct. Yeah. Interesting. That's, yeah. that's so I think the evidence is pretty clear for its role in prophylaxis um, when yep. we look at population studies and that meta-analysis I just mentioned. Um, but yeah, the evidence is starting to come out now that it's beneficial even in people who, who have the infection. Oh, that's reassuring. It's great. Yeah. Um, the other one that's sort of getting a, a bit of press at the moment is glutathione. Okay. Um, so you know, reduced intracellular glutathione does seem to be um, a key mediator of complication um, and death and hospitalisation. And we know that glutathione is really prevalent in the lining of your lungs. Um, also, for viruses to be able to replicate, um, there's a lot of mechanisms they utilise to deplete glutathione okay. to allow them to do that. Wow. Um, so, again, we are starting to get some intervention studies now showing that um, oral glutathione supplementation um, or even N-acetylcysteine is able to reduce the severity and duration. So that's a really accessible strategy to us we can use as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, there does seem to be a bit of an axis going on right. there between the ACE receptors and glutathione and vitamin D. And vitamin D. So we know we need vitamin D to support the expression of those glutathione producing genes. Um, and the levels of intracellular glutathione seem to help regulate this ACE1, ACE2 balance. Ah. Um, we also know that COVID um, attaches to ACE1 preferentially and downregulates ACE2. So we can sort of help to mitigate that by getting those glutathione levels up. Okay. Um, and apart from that, we know that reactive oxygen species, um, you, you know, your redox balance is really important um, in determining whether or not you develop long COVID or that, you know, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Right. So um, anything we can do to provide antioxidant support yep. seems to be beneficial. Right. I'm sure we'll come back to the long COVID. I think there's a couple other uh, micronutrients that are, uh, have been investigated in COVID. Yeah, definitely. I mean, zinc, that's not yeah. a surprise. Yeah. Um, we have got a, a nice little intervention trial now where they gave quite high dose zinc between one and 200 milligrams a day as a lozenge and they gave that for 10 days and that um, they showed that from 24 hours the um, symptoms started to reduce. So that was a small trial but it was, yep. showed a really positive effect there. Um, and zinc, you know, we know that that actually gets into the coronavirus and inhibits replication. Yep. Better still if you can combine it with uh, what they call an ionophore. So something like green tea or even quercetin that really helps shuttle the zinc into the cells and improve that, that level of uptake can be really beneficial. Uh, the other one that caught my eye though was selenium. Yeah, that was interesting. Tell me about selenium. Yeah, so in areas where uh, we see the soils are deficient in selenium, the rates of um, spread and mortality from COVID are significantly higher, up to double in double. some places. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and um, they've also shown that in individuals with severe COVID, they're 70, uh, 76% of them have a selenium deficiency. Wow, wow. Um, a lot of them also have an accompanying vitamin D deficiency right. there. So yeah. that's, it's a little bit hard to tease that apart, but yep. selenium is important. Um, and especially in a country like Australia, yeah, you know, we know our soils are depleted, um, yep. and when we get floods like this, it's probably even worse. You see it float right past your window, don't you? That's <laughs> Selenium it. and everything else, <laughs> neighbours bike. All those trace minerals. Um, 
and selenium obviously is um, intimately connected with glutathione as well, so it makes sense there. Exactly. Um, you mentioned quercetin. Can you? There's a lot of interest in natural medicine around quercetin. Mm. Can you go into any more detail? What's the you know the results emerging around quercetin and COVID? Yeah, so um, it has a number of actions which are going to be really beneficial for COVID. First of all, it has that ionophore effect, so it helps transport right. the zinc. But also, it stabilises mast cells. Um, yep. It's anti-inflammatory and yep. it's antioxidant. Yeah. So the combination of all these effects is really useful in COVID, particularly in um, preventing it getting to that severe hospitalisation. Yeah. Okay. Type Interesting. Stage. I think there's been one clinical trial on quercetin showing benefit, and if you go onto clinicaltrials.gov, there's about two dozen underway. Yes. So I think it's the next big thing will be yeah, yeah. Yeah, watch this space. Um, the other one, black seed oil. Ah, Nigella sativa. <laughs> That's the one, yeah. Um, so in vitro, it shows action against COVID. Yep. And we have got three trials now. Uh, one comes out of Egypt, one comes out of China, one comes out of Israel, I believe. Um, now, one's pre-publication and the other right. two, you won't find on PubMed because they're in obscure little journals. Sure. Um, but they did show that a dose of between three and five grams a day of black seed was uh, effective in reducing the um, the length and severity of COVID. Oh, that's interesting. So that's an interesting one as well. Nigella, yeah, it's got so many good actions, doesn't it? It does. In terms of long COVID? Yeah, yeah interesting. Long COVID's a tough one, isn't it? That's a whole other discussion. So I guess before I chat about some of the things we can do about it, I'd like to get your thoughts on it. There's a few schools of thought there. Some people are saying it might be a functional urological disorder. Some people are saying it's just you know, garden variety, post-viral fatigue. Um, but then there is some evidence that suggests it might specifically attack the nervous system and cause lung fibrosis different yeah, to other yeah, diseases. What, yeah. What's your take on that? Yeah, well, I'll mention a few and you can maybe um, round out the conversation because there's so <laughs> many different angles to take. Um, I, I flip and flop between, you know, what I think the driver or drivers are. So I'm going to probably, unfortunately, sit on the fence with this one <laughs> and watch this space. But that, I suppose that the things that pique my interest are... As you mentioned, the nervous system, there's um, evidence that the, the vagal nerve, and I probably should back it up a bit. Um, what we're finding, or well, not we, and we're not scientists, but we're communicating, what science is finding is that COVID gets into every sort of nook and cranny in the body and has this sort of lasting effect. Um, you know, the brain, the lungs, um, testes, you know, there's links around fertility now and erectile dysfunction. Um, but one area of interest for me was the, the vagal nerve, the vagus nerve. So it seems to be uh, affecting the vagus nerve. And uh, we know that the vagal tone can affect our um, inflammatory tone between the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So right. if that's sort of jammed on the sort of pro-inflammatory side, mm -hmm. we've got this um, pro-inflammatory environment that's continuing on. So part of me thinks that um, COVID is this sort of garden variety post-viral syndrome. But that doesn't mean that's a benign state. That's still no. difficult to treat. But from a, a, a treatment point of view, you, you just go in it like a, any other sort of post-viral syndrome with your adaptogens and your immune herbs and that sort of stuff. But there is these other elements around pro-inflammatory um, environment. And this leads into um, this uh, pro-resolving physiology that we've been talking about for the last couple of years. So. Okay. Uh, if I can just go on a bit of a tangent around the, yeah, yeah. Um, how we, we've got, maybe five, 10 years ago in natural medicine and, and in science in general, the view was inflammation's bad. It's this, you know, elevated cytokines and we employ, you know, from aspirin to, you know, curcumin to dampen those pro-inflammatory mediators. And that's not wrong. It's just um, half the story. Mm -hmm. The other half of the story is when our immune system actually flips and becomes um, 
healing and, and beneficial to us where it, particularly the macrophages, um, and they, a lot of them reside in the, the spleen and the vagus nerve activates the spleen. So the macrophages right. are biased to a, a sort of a polarized state. Sort of like COVID, everyone's you know, on one side or the other. <laughs> um, but um, these macrophages are in the M1 pro-inflammatory state, spewing out all those mediators, those pro-inflammatory cytokines. We're trying to dampen that with our um, botanicals, but there's another school of thought about helping them transition over to the M2 state, which is the pro-resolution state. So that's active physiology to dampen resolution. Right. So there is some emerging evidence that um, long COVID patients are stuck in that M1 state. And Metagenics itself in, uh, in North America are looking at some research now, conducting some research and looking at the um, M2, M1 phenotype profile in long COVID patients and whether the administration of these specialised pro-resolving mediators can benefit long COVID patients. Interesting. And so I wonder, you mentioned that the vagal nerve is involved in that as well. I have seen some studies suggesting that um, transcutaneous vagal nerve stimulation can be beneficial yeah. for long COVID. So, I mean, maybe in combination with the SPMs, they could work yes. better. Um, yeah. Have you got any comment on that? Yeah, well, interestingly, um, the transcutaneous vagal nerve stimulation, TVNS, mm -hmm. um, that activates the vagal nerve. It has activates this inflammatory reflex in our brain. Um, you can you stick it on your ear. And, but it, it activates your vagal nerve and that electrical stimuli essentially goes to the spleen right. to flip the um, macrophages over to the um, uh, resolution state. So I, I'd see it as really a synergistic um, effect. Anything that can stimulate the vagus nerve, I think the TVNS is very specific. You know, that people talk about sort of um, gargling and yodeling and singing, and I think it's fine, but this, um, the, the data's pretty good. Um, more and more trials came out. I think the one came out yesterday that 15 hertz, um, for those who are into the, the geeky tech mm -hmm. side, I think 15 hertz has a really powerful anti-inflammatory effect. But if you couple that with the actual down, the, the metabolites or the, the nutrition, ISPMs, I think you're going to get a nice sort of one-two punch for long COVID. Mm. And that, I mean, that certainly makes sense to me because all your auricular acupuncture points to um, stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system are there. Yeah, you're right. Um, and so, and we've seen that being effective for anxiety and things for years. Yeah, so yeah. It all kind of meshes back together, exactly. which is really nice. So tell me about the, that's a long COVID, oh, that's the, the inflammation. You mentioned something about lung fibrosis. I'm not terribly familiar with it, so can you share? Yeah, so I mean, it does seem that about 20% of people who have a serious case of COVID go on to develop some sort of short-term lung fibrosis, and a smaller subset of them go on to develop a long-term fibrosis, right. which can cause quite severe damage. Yeah. Um, so it's really early days as far as clinical trials in this space go. But we have got some good evidence coming from a sort of number of sources around astragalus. Ah. Um, so firstly, astragalus was used in China as part of um, the traditional TCM formulas alongside Western treatment. For um, COVID? For COVID, uh, yeah. Okay. And at a population level, it was shown to be quite effective. Yep. Um, but we know more specifically that astragalus can inhibit lung fibrosis in other conditions. Yep. Um, so like in you know pneumonias, but also in COPD and things like that. It's been shown to do that by downregulating TGF-beta. Okay. Um, and in this case of COVID lung fibrosis, we see an increase in TGF-beta. So it's a mechanistic link that I'm making there. Um, but given the traditional applications of astragalus in post-viral syndrome, yep. I think you know, there is certainly some yeah. potential there and something that you know, might be worth looking certainly at. Certainly good rationale there. Yeah, they also, um, like in sort of um, standard medical areas, they use anti-fibrinolytics. So yep. you know, again, our fish oils may be beneficial there. Yeah, um, yep. SPMs may be yeah, helpful. Yeah, cool. Yep. Um, and you want to make sure those glutathione levels in the lungs are high. So uh, again, yep. going back to that vitamin D glutathione. Absolutely, levels. and selenium. Yeah. 
You did mention, oh, I mentioned rather, um, the aspect of functional neurological yeah, disorders. Yeah. Does that I was gonna pick tie up. into the vagal nerve stimulation or limbic retraining? Yeah, I think more the limbic retraining. So yeah, this is a, um, there's a couple of components here um, that the functional neurological disorders is this concept. And I just, we just released a podcast on it with Dr. Alex Lena, a Brisbane-based neurologist, um, where, as the name suggests, like people have somatic and also um, emotional and, and um, neurological symptoms, but all the testing shows no organic or physical, you know, changes. There's right. no nerve damage. There's no, you know, ulcerations of the gut or um, um, joint pain, inflammation, and it's this concept that the, essentially, like the subconscious mind um, is hanging on to this sort of threat, um, fear. And it's in this sort of what they call predictive coding. It, it, it um, predicts what it should be feeling like. Um, so therefore, it manifests. You know, it's the whole mind-body connection right. manifests all these um, symptoms and syndromes. I'll just mention here. Um, th there's also research on functional neurological disease on maybe accounting for a lot of the adverse side effects of vaccinations. Um, wow. Yeah, when you look at the research. The, the adverse effects in um, vaccinations don't seem to be higher than placebo, um, but obviously, you know, a lot of our patients and people are reporting um, these serious side effects. Um, and there's been some case studies and some data now suggesting it could be a functional neurological condition. So, like someone's yeah. developing some arm pain after a vaccine, they do all the the CAT scans and imaging and so forth, and there's no. No, no pathology found, but obviously they're in serious pain. Mm. Um, and this is the idea that the, the brain is sort of this predictive coding has um, established this pattern and we need to somehow break this pattern. So this comes to long COVID or to vaccine side effects is as much as we want to, you know, affect the immune system and inflammation, how do we sort of retrain the brain to um, say there's signals of safety rather than danger? And mm. this is not, you know, um, deliberately conjured up in people's minds. No. It's, it's sort of smoldering around the background. But there's specific things we can do. Um, and generally, our general sort of stress load and allostatic overload can compound this. Um, think of COVID and all the heightened emotions around COVID. No wonder our body's sort of throwing up all these symptoms. But if we employ strategies, meditation, all those sort of things, but also um, specific exercises, this comes to the, the Gupta program. Mm -hmm. um, I've also done a podcast on long COVID recently with um, Ashok Gupta, who will be at Congress this year. Oh. Um, on, and he's currently um, conducting a clinical trial on using the Gupta program, retrain the brain to sort of be in a state of calm or um, safety in long COVID patients. Because anecdotally, he was seeing amazing results with long COVID patients um, with this program. So he's thankfully got funding and resources now to do a, a clinical trial to try and prove or disprove that this, this program is, has some utility. So yeah, I think there's a lot to the, our um, crazy uh, um, subconscious is out of our control, but it's, it can really drive a lot of our symptoms. Yeah, and so just to be clear, we're not saying, you know, this is psychosomatic or all in your head. We're actually talking about like a re, almost a remodeling of the neural circuitry. Yeah, um, and yeah. up at the HPA axis that's Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, yes and no. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of stigma around sort of these psychosomatic, like it sort of is, but it's not, yeah. Yes. There's all this sort of stigma around, you know, hysteria and all that sort of stuff. Um, there's no perfect terminology. I think functional neurological disorder is probably the best we've got at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, it's certainly not, um, it's not faking or, you know, um, making it up or anything like that. It's, it's out of people's controls. It's real, it, you know, these, the pain's real, the mm -hmm. dysfunction, the fatigue's real. It's just that um, maybe it's this sort of this um, 
primal limbic part of our brain that's contributing to it. It's responding to threat. Yeah. And you know, every time you turn on the news, you're being told you, you've got an existential threat there. Yeah. There, yeah. At the moment. It also leads me on to a, another area of research that I've been looking at. It's the, the mental health effects yes. of the pandemic and the long-term mental health effects. And one of the papers I was looking at suggested that while there's very obvious effects now in terms of isolation, you know, um, loss of income, increased substance abuse, maybe mm. even increased domestic violence, we really aren't going to know um, what effect the pandemic's had on people's mental health for a long time. Um, they suggested as part of that that we there is almost a rewiring of the nervous system right. of people in relation to threat. Yeah. And that, that could affect them on a long-term basis. Um, and also things like um, lack of educational or reduced educational attainment, reduced socioeconomic um, status yep. over, over the course of life, how that's yep. going to affect. Yep. Um, but I wonder if there's anything you can sort of... Yeah, there's a couple of threads I'll pick up on. Um, yeah, it's really impacted people's lives. Like, obviously, we look at the, the, the um, infection, but and maybe, you know, without getting too political, like, you know, lockdowns and mandates. Um, yes, it prob I don't know if lockdowns actually stop the spread, but, um, you know, at what cost? You know, um, everything's about trade-offs. We don't know the long-term costs. One of the interesting things was... Um, that study we looked at around toddlers mm. and um, babies born in around COVID and, and um, toddlers in early life, how they've documented now that they have delayed neurodevelopmental um, right. milestones um, because of COVID, not because they were infected or their families were infected, but because of the lockdowns, you know, not being able to wear, read facial expressions because the masks are on, out, um, they can't go to, to preschool and, and integrate with other toddlers. So. Yeah, it could be you know generations of um, change um, that we'll be seeing from from COVID. So um, there's no there's no perfect solution, but this is what's happened, and um, practitioners may be seeing this in in um, in their patients or the you know the parents coming in with their children in the future and neurodevelopmental disorders. Um, and back to mental health, yeah. Um, obviously, we've got a seminar coming up soon, which we'll, we'll cover this on our mental health. Um, I'll, one of the things I found interesting in the seminar, and then I'll throw it to you, is this idea of like a, a set point. Um, we know about like our body weight set point or our blood pressure set point or our blood glucose set point. Sometimes they're too high, but they remain pretty stable. Uh, even though it's psychology, we do have a like a happiness set point that sort of hums along. Mm. Um, and then if some sort of adverse event comes along, it could be divorce, separation, being widowed or losing a job, and your happiness goes down. But you look at the long-term data, um, we tend to bounce back after all these setbacks. And that's the same for positive things yeah, as well. Yeah, 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 win the lotto. You feel yeah. good for a while and then you're back to, you know, you've got all this cool material stuff, but you're back to sort of a seven out of 10 of happiness, which isn't bad. Mm. Um, so we, we've, everyone's gone through this um, reduction, our set point, I think, in COVID because, mm. you know, our status is lost, some of our incomes are lost, we can't get out and exercise. Obviously, I think we'll bounce back and we are starting to bounce back, but what strikes me, and we've got some great case studies in the seminar, is people aren't bouncing back as readily or they're still stuck. Mm. Um, there's this social anxiety that, you know, it's like the, 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 the door to the jail's been opened, but they're still stuck in the jail because they're afraid to, to leave. Yes. So we'll look at how we can help sort of nudge people get to improve their set point back again. Mm. Um, so maybe I'll ask you, like, so what are some of the highlights and how do you think we can do that? Or what, what jumps out at you about the, the mental health aspects in COVID? Yeah, so I think as we've kind of alluded to throughout this conversation, there's a lot of things at play here. 
So, you know, there might be a base inflammatory load or, or a long COVID situation that's affecting your ability mm. to make those positive changes. True. It's reducing your neuroplasticity. Um, so in that case, we could be looking at, you know, supporting people with um, things that reduce neuroinflammation. You know, I'd be looking at PEA, saffron, um, turmeric, those yep. sort of things. Um, also too, we've seen a lot of people's dietary habits and exercise habits have fallen off. So, yep. you know, maybe you've got some insulin resistance, maybe you've got a bit of mitochondrial dysfunction. Yeah. There. And we know that you need vitality and resilience to be able to make positive changes and push yourself out of that jail and, and get out into the world again. Um, so, you know, supporting, maybe supporting mitochondrial health with CoQ10, magnesium, B vitamins could yep. be beneficial. So I think that's probably your physio physiological aspect. Yeah. But most importantly, um, you know, people need to get back on the horse, basically. Um, you see in anxiety conditions, um, particularly the research suggests quite strongly that controlled exposure therapy is, is curative for yeah. anxiety. So yeah, interesting. if we can help people to get back out and start living again and help their nervous system understand that it's not an existential threat to go to work anymore, that's gonna help. Um, but I mean, that's easier said than done yep. too. Yep. So for me, I really like, um, the, there's a Japanese idea called Kaizen. I don't know if you're No, is that a car? That. Or? It sounds like it, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's related to cars. Though. Okay. <laughs> so it's actually the strategy that Toyota used oh, there you to go. take over the world. <laughs> yeah. So it's a strategy of small, continuous improvement. Yeah. And the idea of it is that you almost hijack your subconscious um, by building momentum towards positive goal-orientated behavior right. um, without encountering that resistance that right, you get straight Right, right. So it's often said that sort of, um, your morning person's different to your evening person. So yeah. I know evening Nick will always say, I'm gonna get up in the morning and do a 10K run yeah. um, and then meditate. And then morning Nick will say, no, not so much. <laughs> the snooze button. So rather than you know trying to take on these big lofty goals straight up, yep. it might be worth breaking it down. So an example of this would be instead of going for a 10K run, maybe for the first week I get up and put my shoes on yep. and then go back to bed. Yeah, with the shoes on in bed? No, 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 we take oh, okay. the shoes off, we go, we, go, we go back to bed. Hygiene, okay. hygiene. Okay. Um, <laughs> But then maybe the next week we get out, we go for a 100 metre walk. Okay. And so we gradually do these um, small continuous improvements yep. and that overcomes our, our inertia that's imposed upon us by the subconscious. Yep. And as we see momentum, we're more able to make changes. It's that whole, you know, a moving ship's easier to steer type philosophy. Nice, I like so it. So I think um, if we can implement that along with our basic sort of um, lifestyle things that we always do yeah um, so things like um, mindfulness breathing as you alluded to but also the mediterranean diet which i can ah. go into a bit more um, if we sort of do take a wraparound approach to this we can really help get people you know back to that happy, happiness set point yeah that yeah i really like it um come to the seminar but there's a cool case study towards the end about the the triathlete yes. i found that exemplified COVID. this was a triathlete you know the volume of exercise they typically do that was his old normal mm -hmm. um and his new normal was you know housebound because he was in victorian lockdown and and just that sort of um apathy he got himself into because mm -hmm. he'd lost his status and lots of stuff and and the power of natural medicine working on those simple things like mitochondria sort of almost like kickstarting, getting that progression going that sort of flywheel spinning That's of it. motivation so yeah i really like that idea sort of to me it's like progress rather than perfection rather trying him go out the day one and try and you know do an olympics um distance uh triathlon is just to sort of get their legs moving you know as, as little even if it's only minor um he'll, and he'll he'll get back there yeah absolutely um yeah i just want to pick up on a thread um the mediterranean diet obviously it does everything, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, but tell me how it could affect COVID, long COVID, our, our health and wellbeing in this um, new normal. 
Yeah, so there's a few, um, there's some really good research actually around the Mediterranean diet, um, reducing the risk of COVID. And there seems to be, there's a few mechanisms there. Um, first of all, it's anti-inflammatory. We know compared to a standard Australian diet, yep. um, people who are on the Mediterranean diet have a lower base inflammatory load. And that's due to a number of things. Um, you know, you've got a high amount of omega-3 compared to omega-6. Of course, yeah. High amounts of antioxidants, mm -hmm. um, good amounts of fibre supporting a healthy gut yep. um, microbiome, which is going to reduce systemic inflammation. Phytochemicals as, well. as in wine and chocolate? Yeah, yeah, that, that as well, that <laughs> yeah. as well. Yeah, and tomatoes and, uh, yeah, and all okay. that sort of thing, okay. but particularly wine and chocolate. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, specifically in relation to COVID, the um, pathogenesis of severe COVID seems to be linked to a platelet aggregation factor or platelet activating ah, factor. I haven't heard this um, one. No, and the Mediterranean diet has been shown to re reduce platelet activation factor. Okay. Um, also, you know, the Mediterranean diet's going to be good levels of vitamin D. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, good levels of zinc. Vitamin yep. C. Um, yep. So all these things uh, are going to help. But yep. really, if I had to pick one anti-COVID diet, the Mediterranean diet ah, okay. would be yep. it. Yep. Um, and Mediterranean diet also, I'm sure, helps with metabolic health. I think it's probably worth touching upon metabolic health and, and COVID because I think there's some important lessons there. Yeah, that's a very good point. So it does seem to be one of the, um, one of the standout risk factors. Mm. COVID, whether that be catching it or, or getting severe COVID. Yeah. And initially when I was looking at it, I sort of thought, well, maybe obesity is linked to the vitamin D levels. Yeah. Maybe, um, but I think mm. there's probably more of a, a direct link between metabolic health because you're seeing it in non-obese patients yeah. as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. Have yeah. You any on that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, just to reiterate that, like uh, looking at the risk factors for COVID, like age, I know I mentioned Omicron seems to have shifted a little bit, but age is by far the biggest um, determinant of COVID risk. Um, I think vaccination status um, is obviously a really big determinant, determinant now, but it's certainly um, a, a fair way back. But the next thing is metabolic health and obesity. Mm. Like that seems to be with the complications, severity, mortality, um, and metabolic health and fat mass. Interestingly, um, there was a recent study looking at bariatric surgery in, mm -hmm. in patients during COVID and they compared um, patients with a high BMI who elected to have bariatric surgery versus um, people of the same demographic, et cetera, same BMI who hadn't received the surgery and followed them up over the period. And uh, weight loss from the bariatric surgery, we know bariatric surgery is really effective for weight loss. Yeah. Um, you can lose 20 plus percent of your, your body weight. That was shown to be linked to a marked reduction in um, getting the infection and severity and mortality from COVID. So I think it's a good proof of concept that weight loss is really important. Um, now this is where I think natural medicine and our lifestyle medicine can play a real part. Like mm. obviously when COVID first broke out, um, people don't have didn't have time to lose weight. Like it takes time. It's difficult. Um, you know we needed to. Um, you know we wanted to flatten the curve and all that sort of stuff and lock down. Um, and then there's the vaccines, there's been some new you know, pharmaceuticals that show benefit for getting COVID. But I think this is where natural medicine has a really important place in now um, that we've got a bit of breathing space and we can get out and exercise and so forth. Mm -hmm. Now's the time, you know, the research shows that at least in America, they lockdown equated to about putting on 26 pounds or about 10 kilos. And, wow. um, I'm sure many of us got Uber Eats and so forth um, during, during lockdowns or that's yeah. all they could do. 
Um, now is the time where we can start, you know, doing, setting those new goals and, and steering that ship, losing the weight. Um, we've got a bit of breathing space between strains and flare-ups and so forth. That perhaps if we can make a, a dent in the, our weight and metabolic health, that'll put us in really good metabolic shape to prevent um, catching COVID or at worst, it'll be a mild infection. Mm. So from a clinician's point of view, it, it almost seems like the things we've been doing all along, this yeah. wraparound holistic care is the strategy we need to, I guess, prevent getting COVID, but also to protect ourselves against what may come. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, whether it's the flu in the, the future or some other strain, um, some other infection. Um, I think, yeah, COVID's really brought to light the importance of immunity and, and the lifestyle factors that are important for maintaining that. Um, one last one or one other one I want to mention when we speak about the wraparound care, um, it'd be remiss if we didn't speak about the gut and the microbiome. Very good point. Um, I just want to highlight there's been a recent trial using the probiotic uh, LGG, the one and only that seems to be, you know, yeah. having all the benefits. So there's a recent clinical trial where um, they, were, they administered either LGG or a placebo to to someone who got contracted COVID, not themselves, but their family members, you know, you go into isolation, you got locked down. Yep. So they gave it to the family members um, to see the effects on whether they got COVID or not. And it was found that the administration of LGG markedly reduced whether, even if the family member contracted COVID being in the same house. And if they did, there was much lower severity of COVID as well. So it was really prophylactic in in an environment where you're really exposed to COVID. And there was no other intervention there, they were just giving... Simply given, yeah, LGG. LGG, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. it's anything you can't do. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, I mean, that gives us a really good baseline strategy for supporting immunity, doesn't it? You LGG, check the vitamin D status. Yeah. Make sure the zinc's adequate. Yeah. Um, Mediterranean diet, exercise, like good metabolic health, um, and stress relief, whether that be through mindfulness or uh, vagal nerve stimulation or... Exactly. You know, something like the Gupta program. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's a couple of new things like the Gupta program and the, the vagal nerve simulation. But yeah, all the foundations are still there. The a whole food Mediterranean diet, getting out to exercise, probably trying to get out now and socialise and green space, lots of stuff now that you can. Um, don't discount the, the benefits of all those things. Mm, excellent. Uh, so just, I guess, one more thing um, I just want to touch on with the long COVID and the, the neurological aspect there. Um, it seems like there is so you said that you know it affects the vagus nerve yeah it seems like neural inflammation is is a thing post-covid um so i was just wondering if you had any thoughts about things like you know saffron and pea yeah Are, well, would they be useful yeah i'll give you my view and I'm, i think maybe you can add to it um we know about the the brain's not just um, neurons there's a lot of immune cells but maybe more immune cells than actual <laughs> neural tissue in the brain yeah. particularly the microglia and again, they can have the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, you know, phenotype, um, good guy or pro-inflammatory. And maybe you can expand this second hit hypothesis that um, COVID's come along and our immune system's been primed through all the, you know, stresses that happen through life. It's got this memory to react and um, it's, it's reacted and causing all this inflammation in those that have been in, uh, infected by COVID. And that's maybe explaining some of the cognitive deficits and, and so forth that we're seeing from long COVID. So yeah, I think there's a really good rationale for supporting our microglia with the um, proven sort of anti-inflammatories like saffron and curcumin. Mm. Do you want to expand on the, that? Yeah, so I mean, again, the clinical research is kind of in its infancy here, but I did have a look at a, an interesting trial um, in people who'd lost their sense of smell. Ah. So it's quite common after people have yeah. COVID for them to not have a sense of taste or smell for quite a while. But in this trial, they gave lutein 
um, combined with PEA, and that restored it in about 80% of people. It was 80%? only a small trial. Wow. But yeah, it was very yeah. effective. So I think that speaks to uh, that combination of antioxidant support yeah. and reducing neural inflammation can yeah. be really beneficial. Yeah. The other thing I've seen in that space um, is some papers looking at the um, mechanisms of action of saffron. Okay. Um, and suggesting that that may be really beneficial for long COVID, again, through reducing that, that neural inflammation. Yeah, so okay. some of the old favourites are coming through again. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, we're going to see uh, much more clinical research over the next sort of, you know, six to 12 months. Yeah, on these yeah. Sort of yeah, I can't wait. As I said, I think this is where natural medicine can come through. The acute emergencies probably subsided, yes. and now there's opportunity to, to play the long game with COVID and see the benefits of natural medicine. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I think we might have to wrap it up there, but thank yeah, you very much for your good time fun. today. It's um, I don't want a pandemic to cause these uh, discussions, but no. it was good to catch up. <laughs> yeah, ne next time we'll, we'll talk about metabolic health. Or, yeah, okay, or something yeah, else yeah, something, yeah, less serious. Yeah. Thanks for your time, Nathan. It's been Appreciate really informative. It. Thank you, Nick. Um, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. You too. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.